Good evening. You're listening to the Wisconsin Energy Broadcast, a project of the Perpetual Notion Machine, heard on WORT 89.9 FM. In tonight's episode, we are actually going to rebroadcast one of our favorite shows. Our guest was Lauren Azar, and she is a utility grid specialist and lawyer who has expert knowledge of how the grid works and how the grid is changing. So we wanted to air that show for you today. We also have a couple of energy announcements for you that you should be aware of. Now is the time to register for two events in January that are very exciting. Renew Wisconsin, my organization, is actually um, hosting their annual policy summit on January 17th at the Monona Terrace in Madison. It's a one-day renewable energy summit where you can learn all things renewable from battery storage to pollinator plantings on utility scale solar farms and everything in between. So I encourage you to register for that event. It is going to be a good one. And the Wisconsin Academy is hosting a powering local leadership summit in Appleton that will focus on what local government can do to advance renewable energy. So um, that is January 24th and 25th. So I encourage you to check out that event as well. Um, Without any further ado, we'll return to our pre-recorded interview with Lauren Azar, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hello, Madison. Welcome to the Wisconsin Energy Broadcast a show about clean tech, renewable energy, and the ways this rapidly growing industry is changing how we think about power. The Wisconsin Energy Broadcast is a project of the Perpetual Notion Machine, heard on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Now, here's your host, Heather Allen and Nan Fay. there. Uh, this is Heather Allen. I am here today with Nan Fay and, and Lauren Azar. She is an electric industry lawyer who has worked as a senior advisor to the Secretary of the Department of Energy, focusing on institutional barriers in the electric industry under the Obama administration. She was a commissioner at the Wisconsin Public Service Commission, regulating public and municipal utilities, and she's currently working today as a lawyer in the electric industry. Thank you for being here, Lauren. Thank you. Lauren, why don't we start out really with the basics? Can you tell us about the grid? What is the grid? What is the state of the grid in the United States today? How did we get where we are today? Sure. So when you talk about the grid, there are there are two kinds of grids. One is the extra high voltage or bulk electric system grid. And those are the large transmission lines that you see whenever you're driving um, by a highway, for instance. Other folks also refer to the distribution system as part of the grid or separate grid. And that's the, uh, those are the lines that go from the substation into your homes or into your businesses or into your industries. That is the distribution system. Both of those can be referred to as the grid. Great. Thank you. And, and can you tell us what is a smart grid or a microgrid? Wow. Okay. So... With regards to a microgrid, that is a area that can be operated on its own separate from the larger grid. So it is able to what's called island from the larger grid. So it disconnects from the larger grid and it has a generation source, likely also a storage source. 
and it can operate regardless of what's happening outside of it. Microgrids can also be referred to as nanogrids. Oftentimes, nanogrids are referred to as single homes, for instance. Okay, um, so my house with solar panels on it is a microgrid? Your house is not a microgrid uh, because of uh, some regulations and some technology issues. So okay. if the bigger grid goes down... I go down. You go down. Yeah. And very few people with solar panels actually understand that. I was surprised after they were installed that I learned that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, right now it's it's uh, the utilities are worried that um, their uh, repairmen will be at risk um, when and if the grid goes up or if they're doing repairs near your house and you are generating electricity. So this is a significant issue because uh, from my perspective, if somebody, if the private sector is uh, investing capital that would allow areas to stay up and running while the larger grid goes down, we should take advantage of that private capital. And in order to do that, uh, we need to do two things. Number one, we need to make sure that some new, in new technologies are being installed in homes. And number two, we need to make sure that the regulatory framework has changed to allow that. The technology they would be allow us to decouple from the grid when there's a blackout or a brownout, so that you know individual residential home power generators can stay functioning while the grid is down. That is correct. Okay, so that means that in a an overall power outage, if Heather's home still had power because of her solar panels, her her neighbors could be bringing their their frozen food over to her house and and she could be hosting everybody during the an otherwise blackout is that right that is precisely correct and this uh this predicament was highlighted during hurricane sandy uh when as you imagine large swaths of uh, the eastern united states were out for weeks and i can i was a commissioner at the time and i can tell you the the state commissioners in New Jersey were apoplectic because uh, they were they had spent a lot of private capital incentivizing solar in New Jersey, and none of the, those homes stayed up, and instead, uh, entire neighborhoods were out. Right, right. I mean, it seems, I mean, we're often talking um, offline about resilience issues. It seems like a fundamental climate resilience issue to be able to generate power independently during a crisis. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, just to be clear, if you've got a solar panel right now, you're you're going to probably have to install storage as well to actually be right. a nano grid. Right. So, right. Yep. So that's the that's the next thing that you might want to add in your house, right. Heather. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Working up to it. Right. So there's another um, term I've heard used that uh, sounds like it might fit into this part of the conversation, and that's the distributed energy resources mm -hmm. or DERS. DERs. Yeah, DERs. I've okay. never heard it DER, but you can go, we'll go with DERs if you want. No. <laughs> Distributed Energy Resources or DERs. Yeah, so DERs are small scale generators usually placed on homes, like uh, Heather Solar Panels is an example of DER. Uh, you, know, you can have localized wind resources that can be DERs. Um, some folks actually put into the category of DERs uh, megawatts, and megawatts means you're not using electricity. And when you're not using electricity, that means you're not pulling electricity off of the grid, which is the same thing as, as essentially locally producing electricity. It has the same uh, impact on the larger grid. And megawatts can be produced, so to speak, by energy efficiency efforts or demand response efforts. Demand response um, are um, 
behaviors that the customers can take that can reduce electricity usage at, at certain periods. And just to give you an example, uh, there are time of use rates, which very few people know that they actually can opt into time of use rates with their, their uh, energy provider. And that means you get charged different amounts depending on when you use it during the day. Electricity is most expensive um, I think it's probably around, I'm going to guess here, 2 to 8 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the afternoon to 8 o'clock at night. Uh, and it's most expensive for your utilities to buy electricity during that time period. So what they say to the customers is, if you're on time of use rates, we're going to charge you the most during that period. And then we're going to charge you like half that amount in the middle of the night. And then on the shoulder periods, we'll charge you something in between. And what that does is it sends a pricing signal to the customer saying, you know what, you should run your clothes dryer after 8 o'clock at night or 9 o'clock at night. You should run your dishwasher after 9 o'clock at night, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, what that does is it creates megawatts in the middle of the day because people are, that would normally have done their clothes washing in the middle of the day will say, hey, look, I'm going to get paid if I do it later in the day. That's an example of demand response. That's great. That's really helpful. We've been talking um, on the show about what's happened in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm since the hurricanes, and uh, that there's been interest from Tesla. They've powered um, a children's hospital with a, an array of solar panels. There's been this controversy about a $300 million contract to a very small energy provider. Um, and clearly there are, there are both huge challenges and huge opportunities in Puerto Rico. And I'd be very interested in hearing your ideas on um, how that could develop in a way that would put Puerto Rico in a better place for the next hurricane? Fantastic question. Uh, Puerto Rico's grid uh, before the hurricane was decrepit. Their electricity utility was bankrupt. Uh, and things looked bleak no matter what. The hurricane hit and the decrepit system essentially was destroyed. So as if I were a policymaker down there, I'm in a pickle because number one, I don't have any money. Number two, my citizens don't have any electricity. And number three, I'm on an island that normal, normally islands have pretty high electricity costs because of the lack of um, energy, except now the renewable uh, generators have become so much better that actually, if I indeed, as a policymaker, you know, built wind farms, used solar, uh, and and built a transmission grid to support those utility-scale renewables, I could have a much more resilient grid. At the same time, they're going to want to get that grid up and running as soon as possible because people are hurting. Uh, you know, the deaths are rising. Uh, and so as a policymaker, they're in a tough position, uh, but they do have a tremendous opportunity right now to do, to build the grid, not like the legacy grid, but using the latest technologies. Maybe, I'll bet you can answer um, a, a concern that I, I used to hear expressed about solar and wind as uh, energy resources because they're intermittent. Some, the wind doesn't blow every day. Some days are cloudier than others. Can you talk a little bit about how that works um, in in the modern grid and how that how how do you feed that kind of intermittent energy into a grid that needs energy all the time? Yeah, so let me just give you a little bit bit of background on the the transmission grid or the bulk electric system. Believe it or not, 
the bulk electric system is a just-in-time system. So electricity has to be generated around the same time that uh, somebody plugs their toaster in. If a lot of toasters get plugged in at the same time, more generation has to come online. Vice versa, if generators are producing too much electricity and it's not pulled off, you get instability in the system. I like to um, uh, give the analogy of a swimming pool. It's like, uh, you know, there's a hose into the swimming pool and there's a drain out of the swimming pool. You have to keep the swimming pool level approximately at the same uh, level or the system becomes destabilized. And the, the, um, the levels really can't fluctuate all that much. So when you've got a lot of wind on the system and those wind generators are located in the exact same area, so they're going to get the same kind of puffs of wind, uh, you uh, have to figure out a way in which to ramp down or turn down other generators to allow that puff of wind electricity to come online and vice versa when the wind puff goes away you need to ramp up some other electricity sources or have some sort of energy storage. Uh, the you know probably 10 years ago we were very concerned about this issue. Uh, those concerns while still existent are have been mitigated by a number of things. Number one we found, especially in the Midwest, using geographic diversity of wind resources helps to mitigate the ups and downs because, as you can imagine, the wind puff is not happening at the exact same place in South Dakota as it's happening in Iowa, as it's happening in Minnesota. Instead, uh, in those locations, the winds go up and down. So whenever you're collecting wind over a very large area, you're actually able, able to uh, smooth out those ups and downs as well as optimize uh, the amount of generation coming out of those wind generators. Uh, with regards to solar and clouds, uh, what they have been doing is uh, they uh, now have um, uh, software that helps to predict when there's going to be cloud cover. And so that helps them to predict more as to when they have to ramp ramp up uh, generators and ramp down generators, which, which um, eliminates some concerns about destabilizing the system. Well, that's good to know that that is getting to be less of an issue. Yep, yep. Yeah. Happy to hear that. If you've just joined us, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison, and we are the Wisconsin Energy Broadcast. I'm Heather Allen, also joined with my co-host Nan Fay, and we are talking to Lauren Azar, an experienced lawyer in the electric industry. So we talked a little bit about the overview of the grid. So what are you really doing today? You were in the Obama administration at a very high level. You've worked at the Wisconsin PSC. What is your day-to-day -day like in the electric industry today? Um, I've been very lucky in a variety of situations that have landed me wonderful positions like being a commissioner and senior advisor to the Secretary of Energy. What I'm doing today, it really varies from day to day. Uh, I have, since I've left the DOE, I've represented a number of different kind of entities from utilities to merchant generators who are, um, I'm sorry, merchant transmission developers who are developing transmission for renewables. I've uh, represented a company that has a device that helps to control the transmission grid, so it turns it more into a smart transmission grid. I've written public policy papers, gee willikers. Um, I've worked with a number of different companies trying to come up with uh, new types of tariff for what's called the utility of the future. Um, so I've done a smattering of things, all of which I find to be a blast. That's fantastic. Thank you. 
Can we speak a little bit about, you wrote a report called The Electric Grid 2030, and in that report, um, something that struck me was the threats to the grid. Um, You mentioned weather, physical and cyber attacks, age, and the need for expansion as the major concerns facing the grid today. Um, what What's most pressing on your mind about threats to the grid and, and what could we do to strengthen our grid infrastructure? Let me just start with, we can do a lot to strengthen our grid infrastructure if we have the political will to do it. Okay. The grid is aging. Uh, we have more and more extreme weather events. Uh, we've already talked about uh, the recent hurricanes in, in Puerto Rico as well as ones that hit the East Coast. They bring down electricity infrastructure. Cyber attacks on our energy infrastructure are increasing by the day, and they're, uh, it's pretty dramatic and scary as far as what somebody could do without even putting uh, boots on the ground in, in the United States. Meanwhile, we have had uh, physical attacks on our infrastructure, or electric infrastructure. You mentioned that in your report. Yeah. That was genuinely surprising to me. Tell us more about physical attacks. People actually going to a substation and causing trouble. Yeah, the one I described in the report was the Metcalf attack. This one was most, in my mind, uh, most dramatic because uh, a very sophisticated group, clearly they cut the fiber optic cables to the substation. Um, They attacked uh, the transformers from numerous locations. Um, I had heard that there were actually little rocks placed near where they had... um, um, actually shot out the transformers, which means they had staked out the place before and knew exactly where they were going to be standing whenever they shut out the transformers. Large transformers are very difficult to uh, replace. And so if, for instance, we had a large coordinated physical attack on a number of substations simultaneously, it would be difficult because there's not a lot of um, spare transformers in the United States. In the last few years, there's been a huge effort to try to get more transformers. But that was the exact kind of physical attack that we are most worried about. Not just one hit, because in, in that situation, the utility was able to overcome it. The substation did go down, but they were able to overcome it by using, uh, you know, uh, essentially redirecting power around the grid. Wouldn't there be a strong argument to make that says that we would all be safer and our electric system would be safer broadly if folks like me who have a solar panel on their house could disconnect from their grid in a time of crisis, like a physical attack, and um, have some energy for my neighborhood at that time? Absolutely. I am um, a huge fan of microgrids and nanogrids for precisely that reason. It not only makes sense from a personal perspective of of wanting your own generator at home, but also from a community perspective. There are a number of states actually on the East Coast now that have whole microgrid initiatives going on. I think Connecticut um, funded 19 different microgrids. They were tired of having big snowstorms in their grid going out. And they found that citizens needed a place to take a hot shower and get a hot meal after about three days. And so they have now done microgrids that are more community-based. So each community would have a facility or facilities that would stay up and running no matter what happened with the larger grid. I think that's just smart um, because you can, given how cost comparable some some renewable generation is right now, you can do this relatively affordably. Make no mistake about it, we will be paying extra for 
installation of microgrids right now, but it's a fantastic kind of insurance. Were these changes that Connecticut made, were they primarily physical and technological, or were these policy and legal changes they made to enable microgrids? Both. I forget how many hundreds of millions of dollars they put up and had a pilot program where they said, communities, you apply, you tell us what kind of microgrid you want to install, and then the state helped pay for those microgrids. Oh, that's fascinating. It really is. What's different about the grid's future because of the new policies from the federal government? Thanks for that question. Oftentimes, whenever people were challenging the Clean Power Plan, they were challenging it by saying it's going to make the grid unreliable. That's just actually not accurate. What the Clean Power Plan was targeted towards was changing the kind of generation sources that we need. And the question for the Clean Power Plan was whether or not we would have been able to change the transmission grid in quick enough time to respond to the changes in generation. And the answer in my report, absolutely yes, if you look historically um, at what the utilities have been able to accomplish and what they could have accomplished um, through the Clean Power Plan, there's no question in my mind they could have complied with it. They've time and time again shown that they are able to uh, respond to the challenges that are put before them. As far as how I anticipate um, the generation portfolio changing between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, the Trump administration has clearly shown an interest in bolstering coal-powered generation as well as nuclear-powered generation. And I do think it will have some impact on what generators are actually used in the United States, but probably less than most people understand. Probably, I don't know the exact numbers, but I would say half to two-thirds of the United States are, are their states buy their electricity through what are called power markets and, uh, or energy markets. And in an energy market, what happens is uh, the, the entity with the widgets, the generator, says, I'm going to sell, I'm willing to sell X amount of widgets for this amount of money. And the people that want to buy the widgets say, I want to buy Y amount of widgets. And uh, what the market does is the generators bid into the market and the, the lowest bidders are cleared first. So the widgets from the lowest bidder are sold out and then they move up until everybody who needs power has power. So ultimately, if you are producing really expensive widgets, you will not sell your widgets because you will not be selected unless it's the hottest day of the year. If it's the hottest day of the year, they're going to need all the widgets anybody has. Coming back to the question about the Trump administration, a lot of the coal plants in the United States right now are old coal plants and they're inefficient, so their widgets are expensive and therefore they are not clearing the market, market, and they are sitting idle. And you don't sell your widgets, you sit idle. And it's very expensive to sit idle, and in fact, that's when you see plants retiring, is because they are not clearing the market, they're not selling their widgets, and there's no reason to keep a plant around, very limited reasons to keep a plant around if it's not running. Thank you. And, and Wisconsin uses the energy market system yes, to buy absolutely. and sell energy. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Okay, so one last question for you today. Is there something that most people don't know about the grid that they should? There are a lot of things that people don't know about the grid that I think they should. Uh, let me just give you this factoid. How's sure. this one? The United States uh, transmission grid is split into three parts. We are in what's called the Eastern Interconnection. 
which is from uh, the Rockies to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, there are 38 states and Canadian provinces in that interconnection. Texas, by the way, has its own interconnection, so it's carved out of that swath. But when I say uh, it's the eastern interconnection, we are really, really connected. As an example, an event in Winnipeg, Canada, was actually felt. You could see it in the grid in Florida. Wow. So whenever trees in Ohio touched the transmission lines in 2003, I think there were three trees touching, I, I don't remember how many transmission lines, the grid went down for over 50 million customers. Now, mind you, we are getting tons better in being able to isolate those events, but we are really, really interconnected. And uh, as a society, we need to figure out how, from a planning perspective, we can take advantage of uh, those interconnections. Thank you so much for being here today. That, that's My a fascinating pleasure. note to, to leave it on. I think that's what the Wisconsin Energy Broadcast is all about, actually, that interconnectedness and how our power drives the way we live and vice versa and how we have to work together to make the very best of that situation. So thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening this evening to the Wisconsin Energy Broadcast on WORG 89.9 FM. Madison. Thank you to our guest, Lauren Azar, my co-host, Nan Fay, and our engineer, Doug Allen. Have a great evening.